I invite you all to bow your heads and pray together with me. Lord God, I pray that the words I'm about to speak and the thoughts that we think as we meditate on your word for us today, Lord, I pray that that would truly be acceptable in your sight, O oh God, who has given us an incredible gift, the gift of your word for us to read and to study, to make a difference in our lives each day. Amen. Well, I think a lot of you know I used to teach seventh grade, and uh, one of the units that uh, I really looked forward to teaching every year was one of the first things that I taught with my seventh graders in their religion class, and that was we would do a series on the Bible. Now, normally, the very first lesson would come right after we had uh, kind of gone through the classroom rules and given out their textbooks and everything like that, and uh, I had just given them this long lecture about how they had to take care of their textbooks that those textbooks were very important and they were going to have to turn them in at the end of the year and they were going to get fined if they wrote in their textbooks or if they didn't, you know, turn their textbooks in in good condition. And, and then right after that, I told them to take out their new Bibles, which they were supposed to buy and have uh, there in seventh grade. And I had kind of always hidden an old Bible in my podium and I would reach in and I would take out that Bible and I would throw it up against the wall and the whole cast would go <gasps> like that. They would gasp. And, and, and I did that because I was trying to make a point with them. First of all, I wanted them to know that unlike their textbooks that they couldn't write in, that they were supposed to take very good care of, I wanted them to use their Bibles. I wanted them to write in their Bibles. I wanted them to read their Bibles. I wanted them to use the Bible so much that by the end of the year, the Bibles were looking worn and used. I, I wanted them to, to get used to that idea. But, but even more important than that, I was trying to make the point that even though it said Holy Bible on the cover, that the book itself wasn't holy, right? It, it was just a book. But it was the words inside that were important. And it was this, this idea that this was the word of God that we had that was important. And so I wanted to make a point in a way that would stick with them. Now, as I said before, we are... Uh, having a chance to look at some different topics that you all chose and said, we want to talk about those. We want to hear what you have to say about those. And one of those topics that you chose was this idea of what do we do when it seems like the Bible contradicts itself? Either you're reading the Bible and you come across something and you go, well, wait a minute, it says this over here and this here, and those don't seem to fit together. How, what do I make sense of that? Or maybe it's someone who was a skeptic about the Bible and they pointed something out to you. They said, oh, well, you say the Bible is God's word, but look at it, it says this here and it says there, you know, this there. What do you make of that? And so this morning, we want to take a look at three things that we teach about the Bible to be true. And the first thing we teach about the Bible is something we call that the Bible is inspired. The inspired word of God, we call it. And we get that word from a verse that you just heard read from 2 Timothy 3.16, where there Paul is writing to a young pastor, and he talks about the Bible, and he says that God's word, he says, all scripture is, and I love this translation, breathed out by God. That's another way to say inspired by God, breathed out. Because you see, that's what that word means. It means breathed. And it comes actually from this story in the Old Testament, at least in the Greek version of the Old Testament, where, um, where God creates human beings. Now, do you remember how God created human beings? He created human beings different than everything else. When God created this universe, he just kind of spoke and we're told it came into existence. But when it comes with human beings, it says that he forms Adam out of the dust of the ground and then it says that God breathes life into Adam. 
That's the exact same word that is found in Timothy talking about Scripture being God-breathed. In other words, what it's saying is the words of the Bible are not just ordinary words. Now, at one level, they are. The Bible is a collection of human writings. It is letters and histories and, and, uh, and songs that were written. Um, but it is not only human writing, it is also the word of God. It's both of those things. All right, one of my favorite verses in the Bible is in the New Testament. It's a, it's, a, it's a verse that illustrates how human the Bible is. Paul's been writing about these incredible theological concepts, these in, incredible theological truths, and then he says, oh, and by the way, when I was with you guys, I left my favorite cloak there. Hang on to it for me, you know? Just very human writing. And yet, because we believe that the Bible correctly identifies itself as breathed out by God, we believe God has taken that ordinary human writing and has actually breathed life into it, that the words of the Bible are powerful. Another verse in the Bible says that God's word will not return empty. It will accomplish the purpose for which God sends it. Sends it. So we say the Bible is inspired. It is not only the writings of men, but it is the word of God. And then we say this. We say the Bible is also inerrant. In other words, the Bible does not have any mistakes in it, we say. And we get that, of course, again, from the Bible. 2 Peter 1.19, talking about scriptures, referring to it as the prophetic message, says we have this prophetic message, we have the Bible as something, and then it says it is completely reliable. Another way you could translate it, that is without error. Now, of course, first of all, when we say that, we mean the original manuscripts, which we don't have, by the way. We have copies of the original manuscripts, and in fact, we have translations of copies of the original manuscripts. And there's always the possibility, when human beings are involved, that, uh, that something gets copied wrong or that something gets translated poorly. And so we always have to be on, the, on guard for that. But what we're saying is that in its original manuscripts, the Bible was perfectly without error. Now... What happens then when you're reading something and it sure seems like there's an error? Or, like I said, when a friend of yours who is skeptical about the claims of the Bible points out something in the Bible and says, well, how come it says this here and that there? Doesn't that sound like an error? What do you do when it seems like the Bible is contradicting itself? Well, let's take a look at one example of that this morning. Okay? Uh, there's a story that's told in Matthew chapter 20 about a miracle that Jesus did, the healing of a blind man. And, uh, and, and notice what it says. It says, as Jesus and his disciples were leaving Jericho, a large crowd followed him. Two blind men were sitting by the roadside, and when they heard that Jesus was going by, they shouted, Lord, Son of David, have mercy on us. And of course, Jesus goes on to interact with these two blind men. He asks them what they want. They say they want to see. Jesus gives them their sight. They're miraculously healed. Pretty cool story. But notice some details here. First of all, it says that they were leaving Jericho, and it says there were two blind men by the side of the road, okay? Now, Mark tells us the same story. It's evident it's the same story because the quotes are the same, the reaction of the crowd is the same, what Jesus does is the same. As you read these two stories side by side, it very clearly is the exact same story. Now, notice what Mark says. Mark says they were leaving the city, the city of Jericho, so just like Matthew. But Mark says there was one blind man, a guy named Bartimaeus. Now, Luke tells us the same story, too, in his gospel. In Luke chapter 18, 
Only Luke, when he's talking about these details, he says as they were approaching Jericho. Not leaving Jericho, they were approaching Jericho. And he says there was one blind guy. Doesn't give us a name. So what's going on? First of all, was there one blind guy or two? Is his name Bartimaeus or not? What's, what's going on with that, okay? Well, to help you think that through a little bit, I want to show you a picture. And if you're a Blackhawk fan, I, I apologize in advance, okay? All right, just telling you that. Here's one of my dear friends, a guy by the name of Don Cruzy, great friend of mine, been friends for many, many years, and his son hoisting the Stanley Cup this last week, okay? Uh, Don's son is the chief financial officer for the St. Louis Blues, so he was with the team on the trip to Boston, and uh, as soon as the game was over, he called his dad and said, don't go to bed, meet me down at the airport, I got the cup, you and I are going to hoist the cup together. And so they did, Uh, about four in the morning, Don said, there at the team facility, he and his son got to hoist the cup together. Now, here's why I'm showing you that picture. I've told a bunch of people about this this week. And, for example, some of my friends uh, that, that I golfed together with, this is how I told it to them. I said, hey, my friend got to hoist the Stanley Cup the other night. And then I even showed them the picture and, and said, that guy on the left, that's my friend. He got to hoist the Stanley Cup the other night. Now, notice, I just talked about one guy hoisting the cup, but two were doing it. In fact, there were even two in the picture I showed him. But I only said one guy because I was just concerned about telling them about my friend, Okay. Now, to a couple other guys who, uh, knowing it was Father's Day coming up, and, and they were talking about cool stuff they got to do with their son, I said, oh, yeah, well, you think that's cool? My friend and his son got to hoist the cup together the other night. Now, I talked about two people hoisting the cup, right? Now, to my son, Christian, on the phone this week, Christian and I went to a, a, Cubs, a Cubs-Cardinals game with those guys, those two guys, last year. And so when I called my son to talk about it, I said, hey, Don Cruzy and his son got to host the, hoist the cup the other night. I used his name. Now notice, I just did the exact same three th- thing the three gospel writers did, right? In one case, even though there were two guys hoisting the cup, I only mentioned one of them. In another case, I mentioned them by name. Now, why did I do that? I did that because of the audience, who I was speaking to and what I was trying to say. Now, it's not like I was lying when I only said there was one guy when there were two. It's not like I was incorrect. I was simply just choosing to to emphasize different parts of the story depending on who I was talking to. So when we look at these different accounts of the healing of the blind men, there were two of them. One of them was named Bartimaeus. And Matthew chooses to tell us about both of them. Mark chooses to tell us about Bartimaeus, maybe because he was writing to people that knew Bartimaeus. And and Luke only mentions one because he's not really concerned uh, that there were two there. He's trying to make a point about Jesus healing someone who was blind. It's not that they're wrong. It's just they're emphasizing different parts of the story. But you're going, but wait a minute. What about the whole Jericho thing? Because that's a little harder, isn't it? Because Matthew and Mark say Jesus and his disciples were leaving Jericho. Luke says they were heading into Jericho. And even though it's not an important detail, it's different. And and I actually had a discussion with somebody once who was skeptical about the Bible. And they pointed to this and they said, look, somebody got it wrong. You say that the Bible doesn't have any errors. Somebody got it wrong. They were either entering Jericho or they were leaving. There's no way it can be both. Oh, really? See, the fact is, in 1967, 
um, an archaeologist, seeking to, by the way, disprove some of the claims of the Bible, did some excavating there in Jericho. And here's what she discovered. That in Jesus' day, there were two Jerichos. There was the Old Testament city of Jericho. You know, the one that they marched around and the walls came a-tumbling down? Remember that story? So there's Old Testament Jericho that still existed in Jesus' day. It was a small little village, mainly ruins, but there were still a few people that lived there. But Herod, King Herod had come along, and he had rebuilt the city of Jericho and, uh, and made it a thriving city in Jesus' day. And there were two miles between Old Testament Jericho and the modern city in Jesus' day, Herod's Jericho. Now think about it. When Mark and Matthew, who are writing both to Jewish audiences, talk about Jericho, they're talking about Old Testament Jericho, the Jericho that was familiar to everybody um, to, that was a Jew. When Luke is writing to a Gentile audience that wouldn't know or have read the Old Testament, he talks about Herod's Jericho, which is the only Jericho the people he's writing to would know. And where does Jesus do the miracle? Right there. Right in between Old Testament Jericho and modern Jericho. So from Matthew and Mark's perspective, Jesus was indeed leaving Jericho. But from Luke's perspective, he's heading into Jericho. He was doing both. So here's a case where, for years, people pointed to what they said was a clear error in the Bible, and now that we know a little bit more, we know there wasn't really an error there at all. Now, we do need to be a little careful, because when we talk about the Bible being inerrant, we want to make sure we know what we mean when we say that. Because sometimes the Bible isn't trying to be accurate historically. Let me give you an example of that. In Matthew's gospel, we're told about when Jesus was tempted in the wilderness. And we're told how Satan comes to Jesus and his first temptation is, turn these stones into bread. And Jesus says, man does not live by bread alone, but on every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And then Satan takes him up onto the highest pillar of the temple and he says, throw yourself down because God's not gonna let you die. He's gonna send angels to protect you. And Jesus says, you should not tempt the Lord your God. And then he takes him to a place on a high mountain where he can see the whole world in front of him and he says, Satan says, worship me and I'll give this all to you. And God says, or and Jesus says, we're only supposed to worship God alone. Now when Luke tells us that story, the first temptation is the bread, but the second temptation is worship, and the third temptation happens on the pinnacle of the temple. So which order was it? Well, we need to understand Matthew is not trying to give us a chronological order. See, Matthew's giving us a theological order. In fact, when you go back and you look in the Old Testament at the three curses for sin um, given in, in the book of Genesis, in Genesis chapter 3, those three curses for sin line up perfectly with the three temptations of Jesus in Matthew. In other words, Matthew's trying to make a theological point. He purposely reorders uh, the orders of the, of the temptation so that it lines up theologically. He's trying to make a point that Jesus was submitting to the curses for sin and becoming a human being just like us. Now, Luke isn't trying to make that theological point. He's simply giving it to us in chronological order. So does that mean one of them is right and one of them is wrong? No. They both did exactly what God wanted them to do. And so we have to be careful when we say inerrant, we don't necessarily mean the details are always perfect, but we mean that they're exactly the way God wanted them to be for us to tell us something, to teach us something. They're what the authors intended them to be. So the Bible is inspired. 
The Bible is also inerrant. But there's one more thing I want to make sure that you walk away this morning knowing about the Bible, and that is the Bible is clear. You see, the danger is when we talk about inconsistencies in the Bible or things that are in a little different order than chronological or theological order, or when we even talk about copyists who could make mistakes or uh, translators who maybe didn't get it translated right, there's a danger that we start to question whether the Bible can be relied upon. And so there's another theological concept. We talk about the clarity of Scripture. Actually, here's the fancy theological word I got taught at seminary. We talk about the perspicuity of the Bible. There you go. Now you've learned a new word, perspicuity. Is that clear? Huh, it is clear because that's what it means. See, get it? Anyway. But uh, yeah, no, it, it's simply perspicuity. simply means the Bible is clear. And here's what I mean by that. Yeah, there may be some things where we have to do some research to figure out how they make sense together. But not when it comes to the clear message of the Bible that God loves us. That message that God loves us is clear. It jumps off the pages of Scripture. The fact that Jesus is also God, again, clear message, clearly taught in Scripture. You don't have to read between the lines or look at archaeology from the 1960s to know Jesus is the Son of God. The Bible teaches clearly that God is in control of this universe and he's in control of our lives. The Bible teaches clearly that even though we sin, we are forgiven. God loves us so much that we are forgiven. The Bible teaches us without a doubt that we know how the story ends and it ends with our place being secure with God in heaven. Folks, that message of scripture is crystal clear. No matter how many um, archeological details you wanna look at in scripture, the Bible is clear. And it teaches us some amazing things. I love that whole verse that we read earlier from Timothy, that all scripture is breathed by God, is inspired, and is useful for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting, for training in righteousness, so that the servant of God, that's you and me, we can be equipped for every good work by the Bible. One last story today. Uh, do you know this guy? His name's Terry Waite. Now, some of you may remember this. A lot of you are too young to remember this. But Terry Waite was captured uh, by terrorists in Lebanon and held captive for over five years, 1,763 days in captivity. For most of those days in captivity, he was chained to a wall for 23 hours and 50 minutes of every day. In other words, he was chained to a wall all day, 10 minutes. They would unchain him and let him go to the bathroom and walk around a little bit. During those days, he was tortured fairly regularly. Sometimes they actually told him, that's it, we're going to execute you. They lined him up against the wall, and then they fired blanks at him. Just horrible conditions. Physically, he was abused. He wasn't fed well. And, uh, and it just, just under the most brutal of conditions for five long years. Now, when he was finally released, when he finally got out, he shared something that he used to say to his captors. He used to say this to them, you have the power to break my body, you have the power to bend my mind, but my soul is not yours to possess. You see, uh, Terry Waite was also an Anglican, uh, a very faithful churchgoer. In fact, he was what they call in England a chorister. You know what a chorister is? Carol is a chorister, right? It's a choir director, right? And, uh, and, uh, and one of the things that his choir that he used to direct used to do is every Sunday they would lead the singing of the psalm in church, in the, in the Church of England there. And, and so over the years, he had memorized many of the psalms simply by the fact that his choir was singing them repeated times. He later said that it was those psalms that got him through those five years. That uh, even though on a number of occasions he requested that they give him a physical Bible, they never would. 
But he had the words of those psalms, and he recited them, he sang them. He even said there were some times where in the morning when they were serving bread and water, he'd keep a little piece of bread and a little bit of water, and he would give himself communion later on in the day. Of course, there's probably some people that went, well, that was water, not wine, so I don't know. But, uh, but it was God's word that comforted him. It was God's word that gave him hope. It was God's word that gave him the ability to go day to day. And I don't think it mattered to him whether Jesus was heading into or out of Jericho when he healed the blind man, right? We have an incredible gift in the word of God. It is is there for us each day. It clearly tells us about God's incredible love for us, a love that we've received through Christ Jesus. Amen.